0: This is Killer Casting. I'm your host, Lisa Zambidi. I'm a casting director for TV, film, podcasts, commercials, and video games. And with me today is my thunder from down under, my wingman, Dean Laughing. Yes,
1: Lisa, we're at twenty thousand feet. I'm on your port side. I've got your back. I'm not leaving my wingman. You I'm always not, have I'm my not back. Leaving you my wingman. always have my back, no my matter wingwoman, what. My boss, absolutely.
0: So we're yeah. diving back in. We're winding up this series. It's almost done. And we're going to be. You it's know, gone think, fast. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah it, it's, not fast it, enough for it, me. But that's.
1: Yeah, I know. But it's one of those shows where, of course, now when when Netflix first came out and the big thing was that you could they dump the whole series and you could binge it. And mm-hmm. now I think the needle's gone back the other way. There are more shows now that are making you wait week by week. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, it's kind of torturous. But on the other hand, it's sort of retro mm-hmm. and you get time to think about it and mull over it and. These days as well, you can go online and look at some of the fan comments and the Reddit pages and, oh, I missed that. Oh, oh, that's a good point. It is really cool. It's a different dimension. Hmm.
0: It definitely makes it appointment watching when it's going to drop and you try to avoid any spoilers until you can watch it. And, of course, if you're tuning into this, you are going to be spoiled, but I'm assuming you want to be spoiled and you want to talk through all the The nitty gritty. But I just want to mention that coming up. So next week, hopefully crossing fingers, we're going to have a special guest joining us for the penultimate episode of Fargo. And it's going to be our friend Terry Knickerbocker, master teacher, coach to so many amazing actors. As you know, he's been with us on, on this before, and I'd love to get his take on what's happening in this world and acting wise what he thinks of all the actors and then we're gonna maybe dean i think we might turn to true detective i have to watch the first episode but i would think that true detective would be an appropriate next show for us to cover
1: yep i of course the first series of that starring woody harrelson and matthew mcconaughey was the one that everyone says was so great and everybody bags series two which I really liked. It's, it's a bit like Godfather 3, where I think it's a masterpiece, and most 99% of people say it's a crock of shit, but I hold a different view. And mm-hmm. Series 2, with Vince Vaughn and Colin Farrell, amongst others, it was, yes, it wasn't Series 1. It was totally different, but I really enjoyed it. It was kind of quirky and really tragic. In Yeah, the, the, very the, tragic. The, the, I, yeah, I, the actual, the character arcs. There was no happy endings anyway.
0: No, and and Taylor Kitsch was amazing in that. Anyway, and then I have my friend Leah McKendrick coming on the pod in a couple weeks to talk about her new movie. Now, Leah is an actress who has taken her career by the reins and produced her own film that's coming out, and it's being distroed by Lionsgate, so it's so amazing. It's called Scrambled, and it looks hilarious, so she's going to be coming to talk about that And then we're also going to be having on actress and disability advocate Leah Rachel coming on. Leah is a British actress who uses a wheelchair, and she's also an advocate for stage and screen. She's just a wonderful person. I can't wait for you to listen to her. But in order for us to do all of these things, and actually, Dean, you weren't here when I announced that we hit number 48... In a U.S. Apple podcast charts for the TV genre, I could not believe my eyes when I saw that because there's so much competition out there. I mean, we usually are in the top 150-ish-ish in the charts, mm. but to, to really crack that top 50, top 50 is really cool. But we can't right. really sustain that without people heading over and leaving us a five-star review, which helps other people find our show. In fact, I had to complain to Apple, Dean. I don't know if I told you this. But when you search for Fargo just in the browser of Apple Podcasts, if you just search for Fargo, like every podcast about the Fargo series came up except for ours. And Wells Fargo, which is a bank here in America, came up. And Joe Fargo, like random things that were just had Fargo in them, but not ours. And so I was like, why isn't mine coming up? So I don't know what they did their magic behind the scenes but then boom suddenly we were findable and I'm like okay and then once people find us sounds like that they enjoy listening to us two budget loops talk about what No, but
1: 48. So does that mean that I get paid now?
0: Yeah, as, as soon as I get paid, you will definitely <laughs> get paid. See, I was expecting you to just <laughs>
1: It was like a setup for a comedy routine. You go, just the hard. Nope.
0: Isn't being in the presence of my sparkling person? payment. And- it,
1: yes. If I could put that into PayPal or into my bank, that would be, I, I'd be a millionaire, Lisa. A yeah, millionaire yeah, okay. on your wattage.
0: Uh, anyway. Let's, let's get to episode eight, which is called Blanket. I cannot figure out why it's called Blanket. Dean, you must Neither know. can
1: I. No, you, you know why I'm obsessed on the names of the titles in this. and. Mm-hmm. Only reference I can visually see is of course the blanket that she's got in the hut. Yeah. But I've got a feeling it's something else. And so whether it's a reference to, yeah, you know, blanket coverage, blanket some like a turn of phrase, but I've I haven't seen anything that explains it. So listeners, if you know, tweet Facebook.
0: So we clock in to this episode with a North Dakota old-timey looking ledger that one-eyed Dave Foley is scanning through and check marking and of course we don't know what the heck he's doing but we will know you can't make heads or tails of it but something is up
1: so the camera starts in on a tight shot of this leather bound sort of volume Mm -hmm. called debtors of north dakota Mm -hmm. and then he starts flipping through the pages and the camera tightens in on on the pages and it's all written in cursive and it's got the names and the debts of all these people Mm -hmm. now Lisa, if you look at the names on the establishing shot of that, if you go to IMDB, you will find that they are the real names of some of the crew.
0: <laughs> I love that. Okay. So Thank you them. can see
1: some of the names that you the, the camera tightens in on a Heather Crosby, who's a casting assistant. You'll be happy to know. <laughs> Joel Topman is an art director. Dan Guinness is a trainee production coordinator and Ryan Hunter. Is, is a, is one of the uh, third AD on that, Uh, you know, just the idea that there would be a leather bound thing with handwritten. It's just so (laughs) retro. It's just so totally nonsensical that it'll be computerized. It's 2019.
0: Just a little um, thing about the shout out to the crew. So many times a show will kind of do those kind of Easter eggs that nobody would ever know of, except if you're you know, on the show, especially if the show has been on for a while. So, for example, on Criminal Minds, if you look in the background, there'll often be portraits of mm-hmm. fallen FBI agents, and it'll usually be some of the producers or the directors or something like that. And certainly the names sometimes of, for example, there was one episode where there was a medical examiner named Dr. Lisa Zambetti, and there was a restaurant that was named Harry and Glenn's and Harry and Glenn were our two executive producers. So those little just tips of the hat, you have to have names all over an episode anyway. So why not have them be names of people that you're kind of shouting out? Yeah,
1: why not? That sounds like fun. So we see Danish flipping pages. And he gets to a certain page and he's looking down. Pan is sort of moving down the page and he like goes, yeah, tick, tick that one. And then, no, yep, tick that one. And he's smiling as he's ticking them. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, how is he deciding who he ticks and who he doesn't? Like the level of indebtedness or what's going on? And when you go back and look, not only does it have their name and the the amount of the debt, but there's a series of columns down the right-hand side recording their race, height, Mm -hmm. gender, and weight. And we find out later why. He's selecting white males around six foot in height, and they're the three names that he picks. And we can that we cut then to a scene where he's down at the municipal office or whatever, and he's filing paperwork for them to legally change their names. And just on the topic of songs, of course, we get the song Poor People's Store by Shiny Ribbs is over the top of this. And it sounds like it might've become from like the 1930s or 40s, but it was only released in 2010.
0: Mm-hmm. And you
1: could tell that if you did listen quickly. The lyrics. If,
0: yeah, the lyrics. Were yeah, definitely...
1: the lyrics. And, and there was a shout out to Christine Aguilera. Yeah. I've got a feeling she wasn't around in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. So we've got this cryptic opening, which I just loved. So- covers the opening sequence take it away boss next
0: i was just gonna say i love this actress they have playing the actual registrar i have to oh, i know she wasn't it? she fabulous it was such, fabulous. A, such a
1: fargo character
0: absolutely i love how they have her dressed in this sort of plum blazer with this little little tie and just the way her hair is kind of frizzed a little bit they
1: set it up I too because okay she's a municipal clerk and like famously the the trope about if you're a a clerk behind the counter at the DMV, if you've got one decimal point wrong, one comma, they just throw it back at you and say, it's not right, get lost. Mm-hmm. And so you, you expect her to be all officious and she's going to reject him. And when he says, I'm changing all three of their names, I'm representing all these three, and she looks at him really quizzically and then just shrugs her shoulders and goes, oh, whatever, and just stamps yeah. them and hands yeah. them back to him with a big smile. Just and it's pleasant like a, as you go. Classic, classic yeah. Minnesota, Minnesota nice, even though it's Minnesota. North Dakota. But there you- yeah
0: Absolutely. Okay, so now we pivot over to the hospital where Tillman is trying to sign Dot out of the hospital and she's trying her best to not go with him and to alert the nurse, the hospital administrator at the desk that I need help. The woman behind the desk knows there's something wrong here. And I think doctors and nurses and hospital staff are on the lookout for something like this, are on the lookout for women who've been brought in. With certain kinds of injuries and being taken home by a certain kind of vibe with their intimate partners, that that they they are a mandatory report, like that it is their job to to stop them or report them to the police. And dot very cleverly. And I've seen and I've seen TikTok videos of women doing this of writing instead of signing her name, she writes "help me" on the paperwork and pushes it back. But and what I love about John Hammond in this whole. Episode, but in you know you see him in this first moment and his rage and contempt for Dot is just he does he's not saying much and she's saying I'm not Nadine I'm Dot because he wants her to sign her name is Nadine so he can take her away and he says to her you're a thing sign it I mean this is a great line I mean he I'm writing I is know. so amazing
1: and I think this scene in particular it's one of the scenes that just shows how fucking good Ham and Temple are. When they're together in this shot, most of it, the camera's sitting behind the counter. They're in this two shot. It's pretty tight. And both of them are just radiating. Like Ham, as you said, is just radiating this malevolence and arrogance. But she's also, even though she's so tiny, and in a lot of the, the, not so much the blocking, but the framing of the camera shots, it does everything. They do a great job of accentuating just how hulking and powerful he is Mm. and how diminutive she is. They've spoken before about how can this hundred-pound woman do this stuff to everyone? And so, just this scene, I just loved how it nailed the essence of both of their characters. She's defiant; she's not gonna, not gonna take any shit. She's not gonna do it. And he's, you will do what you're fucking told. You're nothing. And when she pushes the clipboard over, he just turns around. He doesn't even say anything. He just snaps his fingers and holds his hand out to Kim, who's the name of the receptionist. And she hands it over without a word. Mm-hmm. And there's no question he knows that Kim's going to do that because he just snapped his fingers, right? And when he sees the help me, he turns around and looks at Dot Nadine and he's just got this classic look. It's not even contempt. It's not anger. It's just like a weary eye roll. It's really, mm-hmm. you know, he's sort of half expecting it. But yeah, terrific scene. And and of course he warns her, and this is a forewarning about when Wit gets there, he says... You're coming with me, and if I have to pull my sidearm, that's on you. So he's saying, don't you dare misbehave.
0: So this, I think that our friend Laura Richards, who is an expert in domestic abuse, domestic violence, coercive control, and stalking, I think she would really appreciate this sequence in here because it really shows the real abuse of power, right? because he's the sheriff, because he's law enforcement, he has so much power. He has so much control. He has so much control over this environment that the nurse, even though she'd like to help, she can't because he's got something over her brother and he's got plenty of henchmen who will just do his bidding. And, and And it holds these women in these situations. And you can see, I mean, if you don't know much about domestic abuse, you might be like, why doesn't Dot just starts screaming and leave, but there is mm. so much. There is so much bound. The tension that binds her to him is really complicated, and and you see that when in walks our favorite guy, state trooper Wit, who I have really missed, Lamorne Morris over these episodes, even though there's no really no reason for be- him to be in these episodes until now. And you know, he walks and he spots Dot right away. And right away Sheriff Tillman stink eyes him. I had just had this sense of doom for him. I'm just like, oh my God, just walk away. Don't deal with this because there's yep. just no but, good outcome. But you for know you. he won't because
1: he owes her his life. So there's no and he knows he's a good guy. So he's he knows a good guy, yeah. he can see later on when he rings Indira and she said, What was her demeanor? Mm-hmm. And he said in her eyes, you could see she was like a and he paused on like a trapped animal. And he says, trapped animal and it's she was absolutely like totally shitting herself and how am i going to get out of this she was panicking about how do i get out but yeah but i mean
0: lamorne morris we just got to shout him out he doesn't have a lot of time on screen but the levels of his nuance and his dignity and his goodness and his Mm. he, he knows that he's outgunned because gator and his other dipshits arrive and there's this really tense standoff between them he knows that he's outmanned and there's nothing he can do, but he is not going to go without saying, "Your time is coming." Like I see what's going on here, and yep. I'm I'm not going to give up. And dot again, as I said, it's so, or as you maybe you said this, Tillman can just destroy everybody who is going to get in his way, and she de- desperately doesn't want anyone else to get hurt, and she tells. Roy, if you hurt him, I won't come. So in a way, she's kind of sacrificing herself a little bit. Yes, so that, that's right.
1: You know, oh, totally not a little bit, a lot. Yeah, she's, yeah. okay, I'm going to have to go anyway. She could maybe fight without with there, but she doesn't want him to be hurt, and he doesn't want her to be hurt. And it made me think, I was sort of like thinking through the cast going, how many genuinely nice, decent guys are there in this <laughs> series? And the only two I can think of are Wayne, but he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's weak. And wit, um, who's mm-hmm. has a good moral compass, but he's outgunned because Roy's ruthless. And given the situation, Roy would probably kill him before he'd shoot Roy. But that scene when Gator comes in, and shout out to Joe Perry, who is just yeah. crushing this yeah. role as yeah. the, such a complex character. And yes. we'll get more to that. But the way that that the way that Gator just sidles up to him at the end uh, when Roy says, "Okay, let's go," and he says, "Time to go, Jay Z," right? This you know racist sort of thing. And then says, Oh, look at that, Officer Nightstick's on his period. And I'm just like, Oh, you are. He just, his performance just makes you oscillate between wanting him to be redeemable and going, No, just not, you know? But you
0: sort of know that he's, this is very performative, right? He's doing it because he's in mm. front of his dad. I mean, he'd do it anyway, but especially with his dad there, he wants to yep. act like the big guy. And I guess to the credit of the writing, all of those insults do nothing to really hurt state trooper wit they just weaken joe yes. character they just show yep. what a total idiot he is and, and how pathetic it is to say those stupid insults anyway so you already talked about the call that trooper wit makes to deputy indira and we don't know when we see indira we don't know if she's taken lorraine's job offer i mean she's in her squad car she's in her uniform she looks like she's on patrol you know breaking up some kind of shit but she hasn't we don't know
1: it was worse than that and i wonder if they put this particular line in there as part of the reason why she also took takes the job she hasn't yet but she goes and takes the job Uh, but also he said what oh you know what have you been doing and she said oh you know just evicting some people onto the street you know the usual kind of shit it's like she's maybe she was thinking is this what i'm going to be doing is this the sort of well and on, on another level on a meta level, a lot of this series has been about debt. You know, you've got the mm-hmm. debt queen of the Midwest with Lorraine. You've got the, the the debt that Endear is in to, you know, from a dickhead husband, Lars. You've got the debt that that Roy feels that Nadine owes him for leaving. Mm-hmm. It's all about perception of who owes who and all that sort of, sort of yeah, thing. Even,
0: so even the asshole husband, what is his name, Lars? La, Lars thinks that his wife owes him being yeah. more of a wife. So everybody <laughs> thinks that they're owed something that they're not getting. Yeah. Okay. So well, let's rack over to this beautiful landscape shot that we have of this windmill and this old barn. Now, I just want to mention that at, it's at this point we have the usual Fargo Chiron that is totally a lie that, you know, out of respect for the, you know, this is a true story, blah, 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 out of the mm. respect for the dead, blah, blah, names have been changed. We know that is not true. And it's just like an old trope that this series is using that I kind of feel is worn out its welcome, like after the first episode. Mm. But what this show really needed right here was a fucking massive trigger warning, because, I mean, I love that at the end they do flash up the National Domestic Abuse Lifeline numbers, and that's super amazing. But I think it really called for a huge trigger warning at the top of this. Now, you know, I watched this on Hulu the day after. I don't know if there are trigger warnings that I just don't see because of the way that I stream it. I don't know. But yeah, I think that it really needed one, to be honest with you.
1: it's traumatizing? You know, everything that happens in that heart is just it's like a torture, not torture porn, but it's not the right word, but it's torturous. Like she's being tortured. And you know she's in this rickety little hut in a freezing cold North Dakota. There's snow on the ground. The hut's got all these gaps in in the boards, and the doors don't even close properly. So it would be freezing cold. It was just like, yeah, it's like a, it's like something out of Saw or some kind of horror movie. It's just yeah. horrific. And yeah, and you know the establishing shots got the windmill. Yeah, which now we know has been understand. important
0: because this is we've seen this windmill many times. It was in her dream.
1: Um, That's so right. we know
0: that there's something significant yep. about this windmill, yeah.
1: Yep. Like the chicken and like the puppets and the puppet song, it's all some of the stuff that, you know, that informed her, her dream sequence in, in the Linda episode. And what I, it's really interesting, the arc that she goes through from the from this opening scene in the hut to the final scene in the hut, she takes him on in this scene where he starts out talking and she just attacks him verbally, right? She belittles him. She tells him he doesn't have a plan. And she's got this aggression that we haven't seen since she was talking to Lorraine in, what is it, episode two or three. And she drops out of this meek, mild character and says, listen, bitch, I've gone mm. through six levels of hell and I'm not going to give it up. I haven't seen that. She's been, she's been clever and she's MacGyvered her way out of situations, mm-hmm. but not with a full on aggression, but she gives it to Tillman in the initial part of this scene.
0: In the initial then, part. Yeah. But yes. Then, in the initial part. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and then he says, you know what? I'm just going to let you tie yourself out like a horse with the bit between its teeth. Mm-hmm. And so indicating that not only does he think that she is his property, but she's like livestock. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the kind of level of humanity that he puts on her, which is to say absolutely none. And then at, at one point, she says, I was 15. And he just looks at her and sneers and says, oh, please. You had your hair in your menses.
0: That like, was so gross. I, could you, I, I, was took, like, I wanted oh, to vomit. When I...
1: God. But the fact that he used the word menses, like it's such an old fashioned word. And I just stopped and had to write the note. Could he get any more despicable and deplorable? Maybe. But Jesus, that was low. It wasn't the
0: menses that bothered me. It was the hair. What he's referring to is her pubic hair. Yes. And, you know, this is the thing. And I'm sure I wish Laura were here because she would be going off on this. That, you know, we have all these different states that have different ages of consent, right? And if, you know, if you're a certain age of consent or if you look like a woman or if you've had your period or if you're growing your, you know, your womanly hair, then that means that you're old enough, right? Yeah. And it's just so revolting you and, and anyway. But but the... it but
1: it kind of fits the, the biblical version he has of life, right? Yeah. So if you just press pause on the fact that we're in 2024 and you go back to a thousand years beforehand, nobody was complaining if you were married at the age of 12 or 13, right? Mm-hmm. That was very mm-hmm. common. And so it's almost that old school Bible, biblical, centuries ago, medieval kind of view, which totally fits Tillman's worldview. So... It's disgusting and disgraceful by our standards, but it fits his character so well. And it's bold writing, really bold writing. Yeah, the writing for his
0: characters is insanely amazing. I just question a little bit her monologue in the center of this section where she starts to paint out what her life is like with her little husband and her daughter and all the little... Day to day things that she's looking forward to doing, and I'm questioning it. Like, look, a hostage will definitely do this to try to ingratiate themselves and, and personalize and humanize their life to their captor. But she knows this guy, and he's not going to feel any sympathy for her story. If anything, he's going to feel disgust and jealousy for yeah. any good thing she says. You know, so I kind of was like, she knows that. He doesn't have a tender heart for her to play on. It was just yeah. sort of an interesting little pivot there that I wasn't sure about.
1: I took it as desperation that she tried to be aggressive with him and he slapped her down, only verbally at yeah, this she point. Can't, but like, she can't see him
0: from a, in a physical fight, at least not.
1: No, that. that's right. So when she goes on about, you know, being a den mother and we're getting a kitten and that was classic we just started watching Call the Midwave and it's thirteen seasons. You know, her and Wayne yeah. are watching <laughs> this is and it was kind of sad and pathetic. And you know that's not gonna sway him, but maybe it's an, like I said, it's an indication that she's I'm gonna try everything, even though you said she knows she's not gonna get out of it.
0: I'm glad you and reminded me of that line. No, that's one of the lines that I bumped on. It's this sort of glibness or this jokiness that I'm like, this doesn't belong here. You know, we've Which just started line? Watching, I, we just started watching Call the Midwife oh. like that is it's a quaint little thing that would be funny in another context. But this is such mm. a serious this death match that I was like, mm. this feels weird that she's kind of being kitschy and aw shucksy folksy in this moment. Instead of well, saying the- my my fucking mother-in-law is going to eviscerate you if you touch me, you know, you know what I mean? Like she's got bigger guns, I feel like. Yes, yeah. Although
1: he would probably take that on as a challenge. And yeah. I, I hope there's going to be a showdown between Lorraine and Roy. But you, you just mentioned about people, your cap, people who are captive trying to humanize their captors, And the way that she was talking, I just had a flash on Silence of the Lambs. Wait a second, I'll make sense of it. <laughs> so there's a point where uh, the, 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 Clarice Starling rescues Catherine Martin, who's the girl down in the well. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Clarice Starling and her friend Ardelia they're at Quantico and they're watching the mother Senator Ruth Martin making an appeal on TV. Mm -hmm. And she's saying, you know, please, my daughter Catherine is is beautiful. She's lovely. She's kind. She's this and Adelia turns to Clarice and says, that's really smart. Clarice goes, what do you mean? She goes, look at the way she's humanizing her. She's making Mm -hmm. Catherine seem more human. Adelia says it makes her harder for him to tear her up. Mm. and and i was reminded of that and i'm like oh is that what she's trying to do but we know that's pointless so i don't know but it just yeah. it, i just hit i just joined that dot and she says oh you know my, my daughter scotty and now we find out for sure by the way it is Wayne's daughter not royce mm-hmm. okay because right. there was speculation that maybe she was royce but no right. and he says it's all fruit of the poison tree which is a, a legal definition usually in evidence like if you go into a house and you get evidence without a warrant, even if you find a murder weapon, it's fruit of the poison tree and it's not admissible. And he says that's that's legal. That's a legal term for two wrongs don't make a right. So he translates the legal into biblical speak: two wrongs don't make a. Right, you know something right. very folksy. And then the line that just sent chills up my spine. He says, "I promise, hand to God, I'll let you go when you beg me to stay and mean it." I'm like. This guy is a fucking monster. He's sick. Absolute monster. And he
0: actually thinks that could be that deep down inside she wants him. And that's the big egotistical thing that these offenders, these real life offenders think. That I can't have you. Nobody can have you. And I must. You deep down, you want me. You just can't admit it. And if I beat you enough, you will love me. or You know, it's so sick. But anyway, she vows to kill him. The tension between them is fantastic. It's so Mm. layered. And. Just so much depth there, and you believe in the backstory. You know, you really do. They're just killing it, literally. Anyway, Mrs. Tillman the third comes in. (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca Lydiard, who another wonderful Canadian actress, and she is just all pissy. She is so just annoyed by the, you know, the uh, presence here by the presence of Dot. The whole situation, and just I, I don't like that they had her slap Dot, and I mean is this really did she have to do that and it seems strange to me that the wife number three would lay a hand on dot in front of Tillman. it's she is so clearly Tillman's property and he didn't give her permission to touch her i that felt weird to me but you know whatever okay
1: so just to point out i thought this was one of the great lines funny tragic lines Karen Tillman walks in and dot looks over at her and says oh Roy was just telling me how one more wife and he gets a set of steak knives and Karen just instantly, just what, slaps her back down onto the bed and the disgust and the hate in Karen's face and how dismissive that she is of Dot slash Nadine at that point. And when you stopped it and rewound and looked at it again, this is brilliant work by Rebecca. Is it Rebecca Lydiard? Yeah. The acting in this, she doesn't get much to do in this, but when she's in, when she's on screen, my God. So the way her eyes go up and down on Dot and the, just the dismissive turn of the head, mm-hmm. absolutely, well, she says, I never want to hear a word from you again. Don't you ever speak to me again. Now, I wonder, like you said, you find it hard to believe that an abused woman as she is to Roy, whether she would do that. And the line that I think of in answer to that was Dot looks at Roy and says, third time's the charm, huh? I wonder if she's suggesting, okay, you finally found a psycho that actually matches you. Even though you beat her, she's probably... Now, whether Roy turned her into that, like the way maybe he did with Gator, or whether she was sort of like that and she was attracted to Roy because she's got the same psychopathic tendencies, I don't know. But I thought third time's the charm. That line doesn't appear for no reason. But I think so, it's interesting anyway.
0: because Karen definitely has an entitlement about her because her father, who... I yes. can't remember if we've gone over this, but her father, the older gentleman who we saw in earlier episodes and certainly is this scene, He's like a big mucky muck in that militia world too. So she has that sort of, uh, this is my world. It's not Dot's world. It never was your world. But this, I want this. This is the relationship I want with my husband. Mm. So it's interesting. Okay, shall we (laughs) move on to this? though? Indira comes home and to the shock of nobody, not really even her, (laughs) Lars (laughs) is there with a naked girl. I mean, I just, I have a real problem with this scene. I mean, for one thing, he doesn't seem particularly bothered enough that he's being Mm. caught. He doesn't seem contrite. He doesn't seem anything. And then at the other end of it, he could have been just a complete cad and been like, yeah, so what? And having an affair that's like, he was sort of caught in the middle. Like the acting choice was sort of, it was. He was almost just sort of like a disgruntled teenager. Mom, you caught me fucking my girlfriend. I mean, mm-hmm. and I hated that they have. So they have this one woman that he's having an affair with, cowering in the closet. So
1: like, I'm assuming that uh, that's the physical therapist. I'm guessing that actress oh, or that that, right. that female character, right, the one that he's right, been right. having the affair with. And one there thing you go. That also
0: annoyed me about this scene, and I'm sure there's a perfectly good explanation for it. So they have the the chastened woman who's topless and desperately cowering and hiding her breasts, and then we have Indira just stripping off and changing, and in her underwear in front of both of them. And I'm like, why is what? I mean, for, I mean, Indira, she's got a banging body, and I'm all down for that, and that's all well and good, but to, to just be taking off her clothes in front of her husband and his side piece. It was just such an awkward, weird scene. And then he's putting his underwear on, and the other girl is desperately getting dressed. Like it's. A, it was just a scene about changing clothes. It just seemed really weird to me. And then she storms off, and of course her car is being towed away. So yeah, not a, I'd, not I'd, a good
1: day I didn't. From. No, not a good day. Uh, but I, I got the. I didn't find that weird. She'd already now. Once she saw that, she's like, okay. That's the final straw. Now, mind you, somebody said. What I really want to see in what some episode is a puppet version of how the fuck these two ever got together. Yeah. how did she that's ever fall for this? Well, that's Obviously.
0: what I've been saying. That's exactly I know, right? What it's what I've just been saying re- it doesn't have a punch to it because you've never seen the good times with them or even a mm. glimmer of any good times. So it's there's really no loss here. It's almost like, oh, thank God that this part of the storyline is over. Unless yeah. he comes back and turns into something different. No,
1: no um, that's not going to happen. No, I just He's...
0: this part, yeah, this part of the storyline yeah, uh, just had no meaning and con- and weight for me.
1: What you mentioned about the choice of him taking the middle road, I mean, but that's completely consistent with his character, right? We haven't seen him like physically angry and whatever. He's so passive and so just, he's entitled, but he's just so passive. So I thought this was in keeping. And in terms of Indira stripping off, she was not even angry, just resigned. I'm done with this. She didn't give a fuck that she was in her underwear in front of the mistress or in front of him. It was just like, I'm getting dressed. I'm going to work. I don't want to see you when I get back. Just fuck but she off. she was already in her
0: uniform. Like, I, it was just, I was like, why is she changing? I mean, yeah, she's had a long no, day. Because, she wanted to no, change she said, her shirt.
1: No, she, she said when she came home, it surprised Lars. And he goes, what are you doing here? She said, I told you, I've got to pull a double shift. I'm coming in to get changed. So she okay. spent eight hours in the patrol car, you know, busting perps and getting sweaty. So she wanted to change her clothes. So I, that's know. She I came just felt home, like so. I just
0: felt for the actress, like undressing and being really vulnerable in your underwear. It's I don't know. Anyway, moving uh, on. Anyway. I'll, I'll get over uh, it. I'll get over it. Yeah.
1: One one little line in this scene, again, one of those nuggets where she says as she walks out, she goes, you can leave the toilet seat up in someone else's life now. Yeah. And he's so dumb. I'm like, that line's probably wasted on him. OK,
0: so back with Dot in the barn and she's MacGyvered her way out of one of her chains. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, so I thought it was like, interesting that she she managed to do that because. Back at the at the checkout at the hospital, she tried to pocket the pen, or she tried (laughs) to slip it up her sleeve, Mm -hmm. and he busted her for that. But Mm -hmm. when he looked around, she grabbed the paperclip, and it's the paperclip that she uses to, you know, push the pin out and get the thing out and sort of start to MacGyver a way out. Yeah.
0: So we get to the debates, and now we understand what One-Eyed Dave Foley, Danish Graves, (laughs) was up to as he has consigned three very dashing, strapping, tall white men who are named Tillman up on the stage. Now, at first I'm like, oh, is this because he wants voters to be confused on the ballot? Which Tillman are they supposed to? I wasn't quite sure what he was up to, but then it starts to be like, it's just to mock him. They're just up there. They've been assigned to just kind of mock everything he says. And the real opponent who is standing next to Sheriff Roy, it doesn't even have to do anything. He's just kind of standing there and like looking at the circus that's And the the moderator is also not softballing him questions, but hardballing him questions, which probably normally he'd be able to deflect pretty easily and get the audience on his side. But he just cannot, he cannot deal with people laughing at him. I mean, there is just no way. So he just loses it.
1: Not only can he not deal with it, but it takes him by absolute surprise. So he swaggers into this thing, expecting it to be just a rubber stamp, right? And he's going to get these softballs. I wonder if Lorena or Danish had cued the moderator up to ask him these questions. Like he says, where's Steve? Where's whatever the guy that sets up the debate? He's like, what the fuck is going on? Who are these three clowns? Where did they come from? He's absolutely confused. And then he becomes embarrassed and then he becomes angry. And so like the guy, the kid comes up to put the mic on him. He just brushes him off and says, don't worry, son. Everyone's going to be able to hear me. Like he's saying, I'm so manly and I project so, so much. It's not a problem. And by the end of the scene, when he punches it at the moderator, he's getting desperate. That was a really humiliating experience. And you don't want to humiliate him, right? Yeah, and and
0: I I think the strategy is both brilliant but also fatal because they brilliantly realize, Lorraine and Danish realized they could try to involve him in a sex scandal or some kind of extortion, I don't know, something. But there's nothing better than watching him self-implode which is what they set him up to do because of his uber. She nails him yep. right away. He's a big fucking yep. baby. He, she allows him to show that side of him, which no voter is going to want to vote for a big baby. And it's just his Achilles heel. He screws himself. So I, it's yes. kind of genius, but it's unforgivable. There's no coming yes. back from that.
1: No, that's no, that's just dialing him up even further. Back to his wife and about third time's the charm. They cut away to her in the crowd
0: mm-hmm. and she
1: is absolutely fucking furious. Mm. So she's not got a little smile on her face that she's trying to hide. Oh, great, he's getting his. She is furious that they are embarrassing him yeah, and maybe Mm. therefore embarrassing her. And then the scene ends, of course, with the slow-mo of Danish walking out the, the door and down the stairs. And it's in slow motion with a great soundtrack. And He's got this wry smile on his face. And at that point, I went, this, I this looks a bit like Bruce. You don't do that to Roy and get away with it. You know, so. you know what
0: else it reminded me of, though? Because when he leaves in behind him through the doors, you can see this whole melee happening. That yes. harkens back to the very first, the episode, very first episode, this big melee at the PTA yep. meeting. It made me wonder, yep. were they responsible for that, too? You know, who knows? Yep. But anyway, yep. so we go back to the barn with Dot, who has freed one of her feet. And Gator enters the, again. Beautiful scene between these two. There is such a connection. Mm. He does have empathy. He does have a soul somewhere in there. But it's been so beaten down by his father that as they have this little exchange, you can just sort of see the history. You can sense, you can smell the history between them. I mean, just such great acting. And when Dot says, I saw your mom, of course, I was completely confused. I'm like, wait, it wasn't a dream. It was a dream. Has she gone crazy? What's going on? So surely she knows that she dreamed the entire Linda commune. She cannot believe that it was a dream. She has to believe, even though she's got to be in utter denial, yeah. that, that Linda is still alive and loves her son. And I was like, wait, did it really happen? Maybe Dot went to the diner twice to have pancakes. Maybe Linda was really with her. You know, I started doubting my own sanity. And the way that Joe Curry is looking at her when she's talking about Linda is alive and you know that she's dead. You know that Linda is really dead and you know that he knows his mom is dead, yep. that he knows yep. it. Yeah, like, which is why he
1: looks at Dot with incredulity when she says, oh, I spoke to your mom. And, and I think this, going back to the fan theory that you have already spoken about, the Wizard of Oz, parts of, uh, certainly in Linda, and even here is an echo of what's real what is reality and what's not, what reality am I in? And again, back to Danish into episode two, when he says to Wit, oh no, we have our own version of reality. And that's not even a thing. And so there's a little bit of that going on. And I I just think that the arc that they both go through in this scene is fantastic because she starts out owning him. He says, oh, what did you tell the FBI? She says, nothing. And he said, why were you speaking to them? And she says, because you're such a sloppy shit, you know, because they wanted to know why I was kidnapped. They wanted to know why my fucking house burned down. They wanted to know all this stuff. And interestingly, the music at this point, it's a refrain. When she's talking about I Saw Your Mom, that weird, like I mentioned that the Middle Eastern music that plays Mm -hmm. over when she finds Camp Utopia and walks in, it's the same music. So Mm -hmm. they've echoed the music from that time. Yeah. And so at first he sort of, wounded a gator is and unsure of himself and kind of doesn't know what to do. And then he turns and, and he becomes, he's like, no, that that never happened. And she, then she smashes him and says, do you know why you're not called Roy? There's been five Roys in a row and you're called Gator. And that's because your dad looked at, you know, when you were born, he looked at this pale little lizard and he knew that, you know, you were never going to live up to the name. So he didn't want to give you that Roy name because you're too weak. You don't believe me? Ask him. And it's, oh, oh she stuck that in. And you could see he was really wounded. And that's where he turns to leave and he says, I hope you die without ever seeing your daughter again. And she looks at him and says, you don't mean that. And he turns around and he looks at her hard and says, oh yes, I do. And it was like such a, something Roy would say, right? And it's almost like at that moment, at least he graduated out of being little Gator and now he's like a little Roy. And I just went after that, I don't think there can be any redemption for Gator. But it also struck me that he was abandoned by Linda.
0: Yes, his, that's exactly what you were mother. saying. that, That's what it made me think of. Yeah. Yeah. There's no and worse was, thing. There's no worse no. thing than to be, a, you know, either abandoned by your mom or lose your mom. And he had to do no. that. And he knows there's no worse thing. So that shows yes. the heart that's still in him.
1: Correct. But not once, but twice, because not only was he abandoned by Linda, but he was abandoned by Nadine yes. when she escaped. And now he's left with Roy alone until Karen comes in and, you know back when in Linda, the episode where he lays his, the puppet Gator lays his head in her lap mm-hmm. and you think, ah, oh, yeah, okay. So that sort of tips the dial on Gator towards the, he's redeemable. There's something nice underneath. And then this scene, I think the needle went the other way and it's not. Nah. He showed glimpses or he had his chance, but he's not interested in taking them. He's irredeemable. So Gator leaves the hut and he drives towards the gate. But just can of
0: just, just insert, yeah. he leaves the, the barn and it's the walk from the barn to the car that is just such beautiful yes. the look on his face her words have definitely cut into him and he's dealing with that and and it'll be that'll be sort of echoed later there's like a mirror of that effect later with his father walking away from the car mm. i mean i just love how this was staged and how it was directed and it allows the actors to sort of have that space to have their emotional you know, reckoning, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's
1: really interesting to ponder how they're going to end up resolving both the Tillmans, both Roy and Gator. I don't know how they're going to choose to bring that to a head, but it's going to be interesting. The next two weeks will tell us. But anyway, carry on.
0: Okay. Every time I see the state trooper, I'm just terrified that somebody's going to kill him. And so he's rocked on up to the gates of the Tillman ranch. One more time, trying to do his duty at the threshold and he just gets turned away. But he just keeps saying, hey, the cavalry is coming. He just keeps kind of warning them.
1: More than get turned away, the two armed guards are standing there and up pulls Gator. And of course, he's just left. Dot, He's just gone through all that shit. He is totally ant. And so when Witt says, I know she's in there, whatever, he pulls out his service weapon and he just puts one straight through the windscreen. Doesn't give a fuck, and then points it right at Wit's head and said, "The next one's going through your head," and you can see Wit going, "Oh, he's fucking serious. He is. At this point, he's not bluffing anymore." You know, Jay Z, this is him absolutely off his dial. Uh, It's like that line from L.A. Confidential when Lieutenant Exley tells the Guy Pierce character about Russell Crowe's character. You shouldn't beta man when his blood's up you know or something like that yeah, when they're yeah, out the front yeah. of the house
0: exactly.
1: and, and it's like, yeah don't fuck with him right now he will put one through your head and he won't he will damn the consequences then my favorite part of this scene which is there's there's a uh, gator driving along sucking on his vape muttering under his breath about how Dot's a bitch and she's that or whatever and then out of focus in the back seat we see good old ole monk just his head just pops up rises up yeah, yeah and it just, just goes back down again i'm like oh
0: look That's a classic you know like i always say you gotta look in that back seat before you go in i actually thought that was <laughs> dot at first in the back seat like somehow she had gotten out of the barn and was like in the back of his but no it's this unmistakable page boy haircut and, mm-hmm. the, the, and the coat fur okay so now we turn to one-eyed dave foley danish graves getting gassed now this is when i for sure knew he was getting murdered. For one thing, he's wearing a very nice, light, camel-colored coat, which is going to look just spectacular when somebody opens fire on him and he starts, you know, <laughs> bleeding. So that's one thing. But also, he's getting gas. He's just about to leave, right? He's just, it's like that Columbo moment. Oh, one yep. more thing. Just so one more thing. Just one more thing. And he's just about to leave, and good old Trooper Witt gives him the 10 on uh, Dorothy being held at the Tillmans. And that his own hands are tied because she told him she was there under her own free will, but he knows that she's not. Anyway, so Danish looks down at his phone and he makes this calculation to not call Lorraine, which is probably really what Despite- sealed his fate. And I would just wonder at that choice. The, I mean, the showrunner wants you to see him making that choice. At first I thought. Does he want Dot to be in? I was like, yeah. Does this solve a lot of problems for him if if Dot's out of the way? But we come to find out that's not the case. But anyway, what did you think of that moment when he doesn't call Lorraine?
1: Yeah, that combined with the little smile and the slow mo down the steps when he didn't call Lorraine. I'm like, like you, I thought he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't want to rescue. Maybe he wants her mm-hmm. to. He's going to go back and tell Lorraine. Oh, I tried, but whatever. I don't yeah. know. But yeah. But the funny part about that was they do a tight shot on his phone, and he's and on the phone screen. You've got. Lorraine's cell, Lorraine home, Lorraine office, Lorraine's secretary, and then just wing husband, right? It's <laughs> just, just one for him and five numbers for Lorraine, so I thought that was pretty funny.
0: Okay. So now we come to my absolute favorite scene, not just of the episode, but really probably of the entire series, where Tillman is parked in his car, his family's in the backseat. He says almost nothing, but there's such a sense of danger and rage, and Mrs. Tillman the Third is in the backseat just whinging on about how embarrassing that was and all this stuff. And you can feel like I'm like, I'm pretty sure he's going to punch her or something. And even her father, who's in the car with them, is piped down. Don't poke this bear. You don't understand what how dangerous this moment is. And I loved that. So she's in the backseat with her two creepy twin daughters sitting on either side of her. And one of the twins, I don't know if you notice this, but she kind of is side-eyeing her mom in the most interesting way. I don't know. I love that little girl. She was just like looking at her mom. I wonder if you're going to get your face punched in right now, mom. (laughs) Anyways.
1: Yeah. I I think it was a calculated thing that Karen did. This is my suspicion that even though she's abused by Roy, she's probably a psychopath herself is because instantly I thought, okay, she doesn't want Dot there, that we could tell that the way that she slapped her and said, don't ever talk to me. I don't even want to speak to you. I think she sees Dot as a threat or she's jealous. Mm -hmm. And why would he have gone to all these lengths to get her back if he didn't want her? So she's, I'm the wife, right? And Karen makes that speech about Dots, the one that's violating our values, and she's the intruder. And she says, she's the albatross, not me. Mm -hmm. So she's talking about, you know, the albatross around your neck, which is the old parable. And so, as we said, Rebecca Lydiard doesn't get much screen time, but absolutely steals everything that she does. And to me, I read this as she knows Roy is right on the edge, right, from being embarrassed at the uh, debate. And now is the perfect time. And she is winding him up to go kill Dot. This is Karen Tillman, as you said, Mrs. Tillman III, going, I can get him. I know how to push his buttons. I can get him to kill her. That's what she does. I think that's the reason why she gives him that little speech. And if there was a risk, she was happy to take it. Because it might get rid of Dot. So I think. Because
0: otherwise, yeah, what is the end game here for him returning her home? Are they going to live like in a plural marriage? Or is he going to. I'm not quite sure what the plan is. And maybe that's what Dot is saying. Like, you have no idea what you're doing here. But anyway. So John Hamm gets out of the car, and this is just the most amazing, I don't know how many seconds this scene is of him uh, walking it's, from the car. It's,
1: it's two, two minutes or something.
0: It's incredible. He has this inscrutable look on his face. And aren't they using the same song from Promising Young Woman? Didn't they also do a cover of Toxic?
1: If this was only released this year or late last year this particular cover so well i know but uh, they
0: did i think they did a cover of toxic in promising pro- young woman as well probably yeah. i
1: didn't clock it but yeah it's a remake it's a slow down version of britney spears toxic mm-hmm. that's playing over him and the camera the, the cinematography on this is uh, amazing the camera's just tracking backwards following roy and so we get a front shot of roy's face and as you said ham's just you can see him just seething and he's the it's fairly inscrutable, but he's got stuff going on underneath and you're like,
0: It's, it's almost we know like, it's like he's gonna... walking. I kept thinking, he looks like he's in pain. Like he's oh, yeah. struggling with this internal agony. Like he's making up his mind on what he's gonna do and how he's gonna do it. And then there's the windmill, which of course yes. is coming to signify <laughs> death.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was um, just gonna say it's like oranges in in series four in The Godfather. Every time you see a windmill, it's like someone's gonna die. And just on that topic of the music in Toxic, I thought it was great that it starts out with the Spears cover, Toxic, and then it cuts away from that. And there's a wider shot of him walking into the cabin. He opens the door and subtly underneath, we the music has faded out of Toxic and we're into the classic Fargo kind of instrumental, you know, composed music. Mm-hmm. And so it's very spare very sparse and he opens the door and it's, I thought it was a great decision. They just leave the camera outside of the hut. And she says, what are you doing? What? And then we just hear some noises, right? And we hear him beating the crap out of her, but we don't see it. And the music is just very, very, sparse, which is so far as so Fargo and suits the landscape and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, we don't see it. And I thought no. that was a good choice.
0: Yeah. And I read a little bit of what Juno Temple talked about when she first saw this in the script and what she and Noah Hawley talked about. Again, as you've said, we don't see the beating at first. We don't see the part where she's losing in the beginning, yes. but mm. we do see the death match when she gets the better of him. And I think that's really important and very different. And I complained last episode that the puppet stuff was a dream i didn't complain that it existed it's really just that i didn't like that it was a dream i wish it was real but i really appreciated (laughs) that he wanted to tell an abuse story in a different way without actually showing the knockdown drag out and using puppets and as you so brilliantly connected, you know, how therapeutic it is to use doll play when you're trying to come to grips with a memory of abuse. So I do love how he has tried to be so responsible about this and and Juno has talked about. and, And they had a therapist on set who had a space for people to go to talk about it. I mean, I think it is great that they had a therapist on set. I think it's hard for anybody to take advantage of that. I think you can't just sort of Oh, my door is open if you need me. I think you have to be really watching people and watching reactions and um, how people are taking in that violence and how it's triggering people. I don't think it's like a passive, having a therapist mm. on set is not sort of a passive thing, in my opinion. But yep. anyway, I think it's great that they had people there to take care of others during a very, must have been really traumatizing and not only just for Juno and many of the people on set who may also have, pasts as victims of domestic violence, but it is really hard for a guy to play an offender. It's awful. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure, and
1: he's a particularly nasty one. It's a really brave. Maybe I think a lot of actors might have looked at that and gone, "No, I don't want to. I don't want this on my resume." But uh, yeah. hands up for it. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. Anyway. And so they have this amazing fight to the death where she gets on literally gets on top of him and almost strangles him. And and it's such a triggering scene because this is a death match that many Mm. women have fought and many women have lost. And it's this he has nothing more to lose, you know, and he's lost all control. He's trying to keep control. Actually, that's something that Laura often says. It's we talk about offenders. He just lost control. He just lost control and he hit Hmm. her. He lost control. He actually didn't he's trying to keep his control it's not snapping all of a sudden it's Mm. actually it's not quite that but he's
1: he's got to ramp it up because i I liked when and again she's still got the defiance because the camera's outside the hut beating we cut to a close-up of her all face all bloodied her eyes open and she looks at him and she says last chance roy because she's promised to kill him and i'm like yeah you go girl so she's up for the fight and as she said she jumps on his back and she's got the chains and I instantly, she's on his back, and she's got the chains around his throat, and he's this, you know, he's thrashing around, whatever. And I'm going, Princess Leia, jab at the <laughs> <laughs> um, heart.
0: Another great piece of writing in the scene was when he tells her, "No, your this other life that you think you've had was the dream. You've always been in this barn, chained." And I just thought it was genius. Yes. And how true is it for women who yes. have experienced this abuse and they're still chained to it? It is very difficult to break those chains, even when you feel like you've moved on, you know, you will be right back in that house where, you know, suffered so much.
1: Yeah. This is your reality, the reality that I make. And just before he drops that line at the end of the fight, when he pulls the cleat out of the floor and he's using it like a whip and he's Mm -hmm. trying to kill her. Mm -hmm. And of course he's spouting these, he's just, he's totally lost his rag. He is gone for all money. And he's just spouting these Bible verses as he's trying to kill her with this chain and he's only stopped when the foreman comes in and says, you know, Danish, the the lawyer's at the gate. And so Danish is turning up and you see Dot. She actually laughs with relief. Oh, now you're in big trouble. Mm -hmm. We come to find out that's not it, but he, but he looks at her and he says, yeah, you've always been the same. You've always been here, Nadine. The rest is a dream. And she says, I'll get away like Linda. He says, oh, you'll end up like Linda. I'll bury you right next to her. And she just shivers and she, finally realizes that Linda's dead. And I just want to give a shout out to the cinematography inside this prison cabin and the, throughout this, everything in the cabin. A very difficult location to shoot, right? It's dark, but they've got to, everything's got to work right. And I had to look it up who it was. So congrats to Daryl Hartwell, who's the DOP on this. And I noticed that he's been the camera assistant or camera operator on 30 EPS of Fargo over the since series one, but this is his very first job as a DOP oh, this, wonderful. This, this episode so good work Daryl you're, you're you're crushing it mate
0: yeah that's kind of par for the course is the same way that they lifted Dana Gonzalez yes. you know from being uh, the cinematographer to directing I think that's fantastic mm. that's fantastic when that can happen so we just have a quick uh, little detour here with um, a scene between Indira and Lorraine who Indira takes the job Lorraine is in red this is the first time we've seen her in such a bold color I wonder what it means and Indira tells her where Dot is, and it looks like that they are going to go get their girl.
1: They walk into Lorraine's office, and it's, by God, nobody organises like Lorraine. Whatever <laughs> she's going to be planning for Roy, and she doesn't even know Danish is dead yet. Yeah, so yeah. it's, there is going to be fucking hell to pay.
0: Yeah. And
1: so I had the thought, Roy has got to die, but it's only a question of how badly or how well he dies, and who's going to do it. I don't mm-hmm. know, but it's, yeah, you, you're, this is the beginning of the end.
0: Yeah. So then we, we go to this incredible scene where Danish waltzes right in thinking he can negotiate with Tillman. He's misread this man so badly. Yeah. And if you back somebody like that into a corner, you've given him no alternative. He just would rather go down a blaze of glory than admit defeat. He's just miscalculated this world that it's not about the ends of what money can buy. But it's all about that losing face and yep. lose, being emasculated by all that. Yeah, I mean, I knew that this was sort of like a death sentence mm. when he walks in. Yeah, it was, it was poor Dave Foley. But anyway, and there yeah, we you're go. Right. Danish
1: is teasing Roy about how we took him down and how Lorraine can put him back. And it's, uh, I had this sense of dread. And then Roy puts the gun on the table and it cuts to Danish looking confused. He's, what, why are you bringing the gun out? And this goes to your point that he just doesn't get it, and there's a real price to pay for making Roy look like a fool. And Danish is about to pay it, so of course Roy shoots Danish extremely dead, and they, they cut to there's a top down shot of Danish on his back, and there he is, he's got one in the gut. And I thought, oh, how graphic are they going to get? Is he going to is Roy going to put one in his other role, almost like Kill Bill where oh, she plucks oh, out the, the oh, bad eye? Oh, anyway, we we were spared that. Thankfully, we just get a, a reverse of him giving the kill shot on Danish. And I can't claim credit for this, but as somebody said, Roy gives Danish a a line from The Simpsons. So uh, we'll play that for you now, listeners, and it goes a little bit like this. The clip is called, If He's So Smart, How Come He's Dead? You'll hear Homer asking the tour guide that question, and here it comes. If he's so smart, how come he's dead? All it is, but I just wonder. It's such a weird line. I just got to assume that's to taking the piss with the Little Simpsons reference. And Dave Foley's been a terrific actor, and it made me think, Lisa. He's had this serious role, and I know I, I don't know really of him in his prior roles. I, I, I didn't know that he was a comedian. I, I haven't seen his previous roles, but a good example again of you know comedians that, who can crush serious roles, like Robin Williams, Jim Carrey but even particularly Chris Rock in season four.
0: Yeah, I think that's a brilliant mm. bit of casting. So Dave Foley, you don't know. Dean, you know, he was part of the Kids in the Hall, which is just like a classic comedy troupe from Canada. They are so funny. And they actually had a resurgence just a couple of years ago, like a new a new version of Kids in the Hall and just, just so goofy. I mean, goofy, absolutely just ridiculous, funny roll on the floor. And then, of course, he was the star of News Radio, which was a wonderful series. Anyway, uh, just before very... we get off,
1: Dave, uh, uh, why does he have the eye patch? And I, and I like, what, how did this happen? And I found an interview with Dave, and he said in the script it says he wears an eye patch because of a childhood accident. So there's nothing critical about that. But Dave did ask Noah Hawley. He said, "Have you given him the eye patch because of all the bad shit that he's got to turn a blind eye to?"
0: I love that. he has to that. do. Oh. And Noah looked,
1: apparently Noah looked at him in surprise and said, actually, I was never thinking that, but that's a really good point. So it was unintended, but there you go. And when I looked Dave up, I was, I had no idea. And on my jaw dropped that he is, he voiced one of my favorite animated films of all time. He voiced Flick in A Bug's Life.
0: Oh. How about
1: that? So that was this there's a nice little nugget. It.
0: So just to close out with Dot, you know, she does see poor old Danish have his body dumped, you know, I guess it's underneath the hot tub. I don't know what, or, or a trough. Oh no,
1: it's it's next to the windmill, they've got a tank that would normally be full of water from the windmill, but they've got it on rails or something, so they can slide it. So they drag it out the way. And so you can imagine if they get raided by the feds or what they think they're going to have to cover up, they just slide the tank back into position and fill it full of water. No one's going to empty the tank and look under the tank. Yeah. But it underneath like they the put
0: lye in it too, probably. Yeah, you so things, yeah.
1: They've got a concrete pit, lined pit, and they chuck his body in and they tip the bag of lime or lye or whatever it is on him. And you know he's not the only body in there.
0: That's what I'm thinking. No. That's probably where Linda is, and you pro, pro, know, anybody yep, pro, else is in the way. And well, there you go. Yeah. Go
1: Dot sees this through the window, and she sinks down to her knees. And for the first time in the entire series, we see her distraught, looking hopeless, and even defeated. Right. So even the for the first time, all the stuff she did in the hut with the, the paperclip and getting that piece of metal out and all her MacGyvering, she couldn't MacGyver her way out of trouble. This time, yeah. so this has been a particularly bleak series, but this was a really bleak episode in the bleakest series of Fargo so far. And it's so, how's she going to get out of this? It's almost like a cliffhanger of the old nineteen forties. The hero is falls off a cliff, and it's like, how's he going to get out of this, folks? It's, you got to tune in next week to find out. So,
0: yeah, how's so Dorothy going to get home? Who's going to yep. destroy the Wizard of Oz or whoever it is? It's going to be really interesting to see these next two episodes. I'm very impressed by how they've handled this domestic abuse storyline it's a rough one it Mm. deserves all the trigger warnings in the world but i think it is doing justice to this story that i think a lot of people are gonna relate to even though it's in this crazy fargo world of magical realism i think there are so many strands of truth in it that i think it's really interesting so anyway so there we go so
1: yep Yeah, there we go. All right, just a couple more little quick nuggets. One, somebody pointed out that when, back in Linda, when they put the pancake down in front of her, it's got the face, and I rewound it and looked at it, you know what? It's right. They're right. It looks like Wayne. They've made the pancake face look like Wayne, so that's that's a little funny one. And somebody, again, online, I didn't connect it, but they pointed out that Tillman wears, he normally wears that very distinctive coat, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got Sheriff Roy Tillman, who believes he's God Almighty in his own town. And he's wearing, and if you Google it, you'll see the exact same coat as another godlike sheriff. And that's Will Teasel, who believes he owns the town in Rambo One. So that's yes. Brian Dennehy. And so they're wearing the exact same coat. I don't know whether they issue onto sheriffs across the country, but there you go. And finally, I just want to say that our man, Noah Hawley, he's wrapped up Fargo, obviously, quite a while because we're watching it now, quite a while ago. Do you know what he's currently doing, Lester? show you, running. In,
0: I think you mentioned yeah? that it was something, I forget now, Alien, the prequel to Alien or something.
1: Yeah. He's doing Alien for FX. And you'd be pleased to know that he's just announced there are more actors coming in. Australian actress, Essie Davis.
0: Essie I just saw that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we covered so a couple from, of years ago. Yeah. What was the movie that we covered uh, that she was
1: in? Nitrum. Nice so Trump. the story about the Port Arthur massacre, which was directed by her husband Justin Kurzel, and the, the this latest chapter in Alien, it's the first of the series to be located on Earth, and I read that Noah Hawley said all of the other everything else in the franchise has been set in contained spaces. Alien was on a spaceship, Aliens was on a you know this plant on LV426, and then Alien Three was in a, a, a prison. Four was on a spaceship again. He said, I wanted to see what the possibilities were if the whole landscape was a lot more open. So he's thinking, obviously, quite outside the box. And he's writing all the apps for this as well. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens.
0: Thank you for that. And next time, hopefully, we'll have our friend Terry Knickerbocker joining us as we cruise into episode nine. But for now, this is Killer Casting signing off.